I'll ask the rest of you, if you would, open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. Those of you that are used to, to me are probably surprised we're not in 1 Peter this morning, but uh, I wanted to share a message with you this morning that uh, kind of was born out of my experience in Southeast Asia these over the last, or 10 days last week, and um, this, it seems every time I've been on, a, on an overseas trip, I always experience something of the wonder of faith, just in a, in a new light, in a, in a fresh light, because when you go to places in other parts of the world where they just, they just don't have a lot, and you see the devotion of the people and the sacrifice that they give for serving Christ and for caring for his people and for and just just what they invest in it when they have so little to begin with it just it just brings you back to the this place of of awe about how worthy Christ is to serve and um and so this morning, I want to I want to share with you just a little bit. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about about my trip, and I want to share a little bit um, also from the from the text here in Matthew sixteen verses twenty four through twenty six, as Jesus shares with us the the heart of discipleship, the way of discipleship. But I want to share a little bit more about the where the burden for this message comes from. And Mike, if you'll just back up a couple to the pictures. Um, there. There you can see a, a picture of, of me teaching and, and receiving a gift from the people in one of our pre-class uh, song services, and then the next picture is, is uh, the whole class together um, at the end of the week as we were teaching. Is there another? There it is. There's that, that picture there, and we got the teachers down front and, and all the class, and, and, uh, and, I, and I share that with you because what we see in these pictures, it's not just a group of people who came to learn about the gospel, who came to learn about being, more about being pastors and teachers. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I, I spent um, uh, the, the majority of, not this past week, but the week before in uh, Southeast Asia, actually in the country of Vietnam um, is where I was. And, uh, and these, these folks came and spent the week with us um, graciously sitting through 22 hours of classroom teaching, um, which was actually almost half of what we had planned. Um, we had about 40 hours of teaching planned, and we were cut back quite a bit. But, but they, they came, they sacrificed to be there, and, um, and, they, and they were so gracious as they sat through those long hours of teaching through an interpreter, and yet still longing for more. They, they just they were so gracious for what we were able to share with them, and yet they, they were so hungry for truth. And, um, and when I say these people, that they, they sacrificed to be there, these, these folks, while it's not the most difficult place in the world to be a Christian, it, it is a difficult place. Um, they're, they're, they endure harassment from local authorities. They, they endure harassment even from family. 
and from their communities because in, in the eyes of so many people, they've abandoned their traditions, they've abandoned their ancestors, they've abandoned um, you know, those things in order to follow this Jesus who, who, um, who they've discovered is life. And, uh, but, but the other people don't understand that. And so, so these folks, they, they endure that regularly. And not only that, not only do they endure those things and then, they, and then they, they come to this kind of training so that they can grow in their faith and in their ability to serve in the church, but, but they also sacrifice opportunities to make money for their family in order to be there. I mean, they, they gave up a week of work. And when I say they gave up a week of work, you, you've got to understand these, these folks, a lot of them, they're, they're making somewhere between $50 and $100 a month. I mean, they just, so when they give up work, I mean, they're giving up a lot to come and to be there. And, and I'm just always in awe of their willingness, and, and I'm reminded of the reality that Christ has given us in his word, that following him is meant to be costly. True discipleship is costly. In our culture, it's relatively easy to be a Christian. I mean, we can follow Christ. We're, we're, we're rarely persecuted, although we're seeing a, an uptick in persecution in our country. But we're rarely persecuted. It doesn't cost us very much to follow Christ. And when it does cost us, because we're so used to things being easy in our culture, we like things to be easy. We like things to be quick and satisfying and, and, and easy, and when they're not, we question whether or not they're worth it, and we, and we struggle, but when it comes to faith, Christ told us that it would be difficult. He told us that it would be costly to follow him, and how we deal with faith our faith individually and what our understanding of what it means for it to cost us something impacts how we share the gospel with others. I think a lot of times we like to make the gospel just full of, of good things, which it is, but a lot of times we like to leave out the hard requirements that Jesus taught. And while we certainly don't want to put obstacles in the way of people following Christ, we also we want to give them a realistic expectation of what it means to be his disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus means to follow his example and obey his commands. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this. He says, we propose to tell how Jesus calls us to be his disciples. But is not this to lay another and still heavier burden on men's shoulders? When the Bible speaks of following Jesus, it is proclaiming a discipleship which will liberate mankind from all man-made dogmas, from every burden and oppression, from every anxiety and torture which afflicts the conscience. If they follow Jesus, men escape from the hard yoke of their own laws and submit to the kindly yoke of Jesus Christ. But does this mean that we ignore the seriousness of his commands? Far from it. We can only achieve perfect liberty and enjoy fellowship with Jesus when his command, his call to absolute discipleship is appreciated in its entirety. 
Only the man who follows the command of Jesus single-mindedly and unresistingly lets his yoke rest upon him, finds his burden easy, and under its gentle pressure receives power to persevere in the right way. The command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. This is the heart of discipleship. Discipleship is not meant to be something that's meant to be easy. It's meant to be something that we have to rely on Christ for. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he repeatedly spoke about the way of discipleship, of what it means to follow him. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is one passage in particular in which Jesus speaks on what it means to be his disciple. Jesus, having has just spoken to his to his followers about that the foundation for his church is tied to his identity as the promised Messiah and the Son of the living God. He continues there in chapter 16 to teach them of the road that he must take to accomplish the mission that was given him by the Father. He's told them that he's, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. And then he lays upon them After speaking of his impending death and resurrection, he lays upon them the parameters for discipleship in verses 24 through 26. And I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy word. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? O most gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truths contained in these verses And that you would speak to us, Lord, that we might understand the call to discipleship and that we might pursue it with a whole heart for the glory of Jesus' name. It's in that name we pray. Amen. Be seated. There are some in the world when you begin to talk about the necessity of discipleship and following Christ that would argue that that we need to separate discipleship from salvation, that salvation is of grace, and if we, if we too much emphasize the aspects of discipleship, then we make it about doing a work, and we make it about earning our salvation. But what we need to understand is that when Jesus spoke of following Him, when Jesus spoke of salvation, when He spoke of discipleship, He never separated the two. He never separated salvation from discipleship. He always taught them as things that went together. If if you were to come after Christ, if you're going to be His disciple, that is, if you are going to walk in the way of salvation, then you are going to pursue obedience to His Word, to His example. There is no separation in Scripture between salvation and discipleship. They go hand in hand. That doesn't mean that we earn our salvation by obeying the commands of Christ. That's not what it means. But what it tells us is that when we're saved, 
God produces in us a heart to obey. It means that the demands of discipleship are not a burden to us, but they're a joy because of the newfound relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursuing the path of discipleship that Jesus describes in this passage is not what saves us. Only the blood of Christ can save us. Only repentance before Him and faith in His name can make us acceptable before the Father. But a proclamation of salvation that is not accompanied by a life seeking to follow Christ through discipleship is foreign to the teachings of Christ and to the rest of Scripture. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone for the purpose of representing Jesus to the world. The way of faith always produces the fruit of faith. So what does Jesus say the, disciple, the life of a disciple should look like? He communicates here to us three essential truths surrounding the way of discipleship. It revolves around one soul, two options, and three instructions. One soul, two options, and three instructions. In the last two verses of the text, verses 25 and 26, he talks to us about the, the value of the eternal soul. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We only have one soul. It has been created to be an eternal, the, the eternal state of who we are is represented in our soul. It, it, it indwells our bodies at this time, but it will continue to exist even when this earthly body dies. It will continue apart from the body until the time of the resurrection. But there is a place of, that the soul is going to reside for all of eternity. And how we treat our soul is going to determine that reality. How we live our life is going to determine that reality. We can have no doubt that Jesus is speaking of salvation when he, when he makes this statement. The forfeiting or exchanging of the soul is equivalent to eternal damnation. He gives us here a picture of the infinite value of the soul compared with the temporal value of worldly things and pursuits. All the things of this world will one day pass away but our soul will endure forever. The human soul is, it is eternal. And the state of our soul is directly tied to the way we live life. Jesus says in this passage, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. When we come to the realization that our, of our sins before a holy God, when we recognize that He alone is just and righteous, and we come to the point of recognizing that our life is forfeit apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Our, our, our lives are worthless if we don't know Christ. They're, they're not going to amount to anything. They're not going to account for anything, and we're not going to have anything to show for in eternity. We need His forgiveness. And we need to recognize that life in Christ is more about pleasing Him than it is pleasing ourselves, or protecting ourselves for that matter. This is a challenging reality that comes to us from the words of Jesus. 
Now, I can't say how I would hold up under persecution. The persecution that we know that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world endure. I don't think any of us can say how we would hold up under such difficult things. Or even just the harassment and the, 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 that the Vietnamese Christians endure for their faith would rattle many of us who have not been faced with those circumstances. Might go to the next picture. Our team leader, um, Jim, who spoke here a while back, um, on one of his previous trips to the, to the area where we, where we were, he, he and the, the men that went with him on that trip were actually detained by the authorities um, for what they were doing. But they weren't doing anything illegal. They were just being harassed. And so the authorities came, and they took him, and they detained him for a few hours, and, and then after a while they let him go. And we knew going on this trip that that could be a possibility. We were told if the authorities come in, we may ask you to step to the back and we'll take over the class. So um, try not to cause uh, a fuss. It says they may, you know, they may decide to detain you for a little while, but don't worry, you know, nothing's going to happen. And so, you know, that made me a little nervous. You know, no one likes to think of the idea of being detained by the authorities. That's a little disconcerting, especially coming from our culture and, and from, you know, we're, we're so free here to be able to worship and teach and preach and to just do whatever we want without, without anybody interfering with us. And so it's a little, it's a little nerve-wracking to think that somebody's going to come along and, and, might, and might interfere with what you're doing and might try and detain you. Of course, I knew we weren't in any real danger, and so I just tried not to think about it a whole lot. And fortunately, the Lord protected us. We didn't in, have to endure anything like that, but, but, it, but it, does, it does happen. It does happen. But you know, even, even if we were detained, or even if the stakes were a little bit higher, even if, even if we were imprisoned, even if we were made to suffer for preaching Christ in another country, it would have been worth it. Because He is worth it. He gave everything. He gave His very life. He, gave, he left the glory of heaven and came down and dwelt upon the earth. He took upon the form of a slave for our benefit. And then he gave his very life in order that we might be reconciled unto him. He gave everything for us. He is so worth anything that it might cost us in order to pursue him. And yet so often we don't even think about what are we doing for him on a daily basis. How are we serving Him? What are we giving to Him? What are we offering Him? How are we exalting Him? How are we representing Him in the world? He gave everything for us. And what do we do? We just go about our life and just do our thing and just, you know, we may come to church on a Sunday morning and maybe Sunday night and if we're really good Christians on Wednesday night too. He wants so much more than that. You know, I understand, and, and I want you to understand just how worth, how worth it it is to suffer for the sake of Christ. I mean, I thank God that we don't have to. I thank God for the freedoms that we have and, and for the things that we enjoy in our life. But if it cost us everything, it's still worth it. It's still worth it because I know that God is with His children. I know that that if we were, had endured any kind of difficulty while we were over there, I know the Lord would use it 
to glorify His name. I know the Lord would be with us to strengthen us, to give us endurance in that time. Even as the Lord was with Stephen, you think about back to the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7, and, and Stephen gives this great testimony of who Christ is and what He's done, and he's, and he's carried out of the city and He's stoned for it. And in the midst of being stoned, okay, just picture that for a moment, just the pain that having huge rocks chucked at you is going to bring. And in the midst of that suffering, Stephen prays for the forgiveness of his persecutors, and he prays for the Lord to receive his spirit. The Lord was with him to give him strength to endure, just as he is with every believer that stands for him, every believer that trusts in him to endure hardship. We need to understand what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 and embrace this as, as our, our understanding for life. Paul says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Jesus is worthy. What in this world could possibly be more important than the state of our one and only soul? What possession or luxury or activity could be more precious to us than knowing personally the one who laid down his life and endured the punishment that we deserved in order to redeem us from eternal condemnation? And yet how have we responded to him? How have we honored him? How have we obeyed Him? How have we served Him? We must recognize that He is superior to everything that the world has to offer. That we can't cling to the things of this world and still hope to hold on to Jesus. The world and Christ are diametrically opposed to each other. We cling to Him and we trust that He'll take care of everything else. It always, or it never, I should say, never ceases to amaze me going into the foreign mission field, the willingness and determination of those who follow Jesus, regardless of what it may cost them. It's a very convicting reality to experience. So Jesus confronts us with the reality of our one eternal soul. And he lays out for us two options, and this is really the whole of the text here. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Two options that every Christian is faced with. Actually, two options every person is faced with. Before you can become a Christian, you have these two options. These are the two options that Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry. There is the way of the cross, and there is the way of the world. The way of the cross leads to life, and the way of the world leads to death. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 7, verses 13, 14, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That's a hard teaching. Because the reality is is that that gate and that path that lead to life are a lot narrower than what we like to admit and than what we want to accept. Especially in an increasingly secular culture such that we live in. In fact, more and more people are, are... want to see this, the, the Christianity. They, want, they really want it to be an, inclusive, an inclusivistic faith. They want it to be a belief. And this is, this is their understanding of Christianity. If you believe in God and uh, you consent that He has some rights to tell you how you ought to live your life, then when you get to the end of your life, if you've tried to do those things and you've been a good moral person, then heaven awaits. That is the summation of so much of what American Christianity has become. But this is not the narrow way that Jesus taught. It's much more narrow. It's much more exclusive than that. You know, those that that have this view of of Christianity as just this basic belief in God, this this becomes more popular as we see the increase of atheism in our country. Because the atheists become the non-believers who won't make it into heaven. But everybody else who sincerely believes that God exists and and tries to live a moral life, then they're the ones that are going to go into heaven. And what that does is that essentially it embraces all really religious views that acknowledge God and acknowledge that that the religions across the world have given a a form of morality in in which to adhere to. And so they say really all the religions are basically the same. And since they're all basically the same, they all attest that there's a God in heaven and that we ought to live a certain way, that if we do that, that heaven is our reward, that God has to let us in because after all, God is loving and he's understanding and he's compassionate. And so if we do good and we live right and we acknowledge him, then we're going to go to heaven. That is not what Jesus said. That is not what he says. He says very specifically in, in that passage, he says that there are few who find it. I like the New King James that actually, when it talks about the narrow way, it doesn't talk about, it says, it says, he says, difficult is the way that leads to life. And that's really, a, I think it's a more accurate rendering of, of the word there in, from the Greek, because it is difficult. It is difficult to follow Christ. It is difficult to do the things that he's commanded us to do. But difficulty and burdensome are two different things. We can do the difficult things and it not be a burden to us. Difficult things can be a joy to us when we see Christ working through them. While some may want to be inclusive in their viewpoint when it comes to God, Jesus doesn't leave the view open to us. There's two paths. And here's, here's the thing. They're both labeled this way to heaven. Jesus wasn't talking to atheists in the group. He wasn't saying, look, if you don't believe in God, you're going to go to hell. He was talking to people who were religious. He was talking to people who believed in God. He was talking to people who wanted eternity. And he said, look, there's only two. If you're looking for eternity, if you're looking for eternal life, there's two paths before you. One is wide, and there's a whole lot that are going that way, and then one is narrow, and there's only a few that are going to go that way. And that narrow path is through him alone. 
through him alone. We have one immortal soul that has been given to us by our creator, and he has placed before us two options, the way of the cross and the way of the world. Which will we give our soul to? I'd like to spend some more time talking about this, but we really don't have time this morning to get into the, the three directions. Because if, and I assume since we're all here this morning, that we would choose life, that we would seek to enter through the narrow gate, that we would seek to walk the difficult path. He says, for those that want to do that, he says, I have three directions for you. Because Christ is the gate. And following him is the path. So he gives three directions, and this is what he says in verse 24. And actually, this is how he starts before he gives the explanation in 16:24. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, that is, if you're going to trust in me, if you're going to put your faith in me, if you're, if you're, going, to, if you're going to believe, if you're going to, then this, this is what you need to do. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, Jesus isn't giving us three steps to salvation, okay? That's, it's really not what he's talking about. He's, he's not talking about, okay, if you want to be saved, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. No, he's saying this is the way of salvation. This is, when, when, you've, when you've come to me for salvation, having been granted salvation, this is, this is the way we walk. These are marching orders for the members of his kingdom. This is the way that as Christians we represent him to the world. This is, this is how we show the world that Jesus is worth everything that we have. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. So what does it mean to deny yourself? I think this is one of the most difficult and yet most rewarding aspects of the Christian life. You know, in our nature, our nature tells us, protect yourself. Our culture says, do what feels right. Always do what's best for you. Jesus says, ignore those inclinations and do what's best for me. Do what gives me glory. Do what pleases me. To follow Christ, we must learn to deny ourselves in, in many ways. I was thinking about this in, in relation to the, the trip to Vietnam, and, and I thought, well, you know, I'd doing pretty good. I, I denied myself the comforts of home in order to be able to, to go overseas. I denied myself free time and so that I can prepare to teach the lessons I had to teach. I, decide, I denied myself the security of our legal system and put myself at the mercy of other authorities. But the reality is I wasn't thinking about those things when I did it. I was only thinking about serving Christ. I was thinking about serving Him and, and, what, and what I could do for Him. I wanted to go. And I believe it's what the Lord wanted me to do. And, and it was worth every discomfort and every sacrifice to make. But what I, what I want to share with you about self-denial is not really what I did, but it's what I saw in the people that I ministered to. We went and uh, we're, we're over there and uh, like go to the next picture. You can see here, there's uh, well, the one picture on the left should have been rotated, but I guess it flipped over but uh on the left hand side here those are some hammocks on the side and then there's a whole bunch of food uh prepared for us up there this is sunday afternoon we uh we went to a little village and we we had church with the people and and this 
the family, <clears throat> excuse me, that hosted us after church that day, they were uh, they were related to the uh, to the pastor of the church, and um, and uh, anyway, they they took us into their home, which they normally operate a cafe out of their home as part of the way that they make their living. They operate a cafe out of their home, and uh, they basically they closed down shop that day in order to serve us lunch. The, the, the area with the hammocks over there, in their culture, the thing you do after lunch every day is you, is you, you take a nap. So, you know, it's not, not so bad, right? You know, who, who wouldn't like to take a nap after lunch every day? Um, but that's just what, it's just what they do. It's just the, the way the culture is. So everywhere you go around uh, Vietnam, they've got these places where there's hammocks out where, where people can go and, and just, just chill for about an hour before they go back to work. And so, but one of the ways these families make money is one, they threw their cafe, and then they rent the space for the hammocks across the street from their cafe. And uh, they actually, I actually saw them, they actually turned people away in order that we might have the exclusive use of that area and not be disturbed. And I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed. They, com- they were completely denying themselves their very livelihood just to show us hospitality. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says deny yourself. He says, listen, put others before yourself. Don't worry about your stuff. Worry about serving me and I'll take care of you. And what, and what just blows me away is these people, they get it. They have so little to begin with and they're so willing to give it all for his sake. To give up everything. They denied themselves in order to take care of us because we were there to preach and teach God's word. I'm just blown away. I think that is something that is so desperately needed in our culture. By and large, we have forgotten what it means to deny ourselves for Christ's sake. But self-denial is only the first step of personal sacrifice that we are asked to undertake in following Christ. He tells us next, he says, take up your cross. Now, we understand that the cross is a symbol of suffering, but we don't understand it the way that Jesus' audience understood it, because we're kind of used to the cross. We decorate our walls, we wear shirts, it's on our Bibles, it's on our jewelry, it's, it's everywhere. We see the cross everywhere. We understand it's suffering, every difficulty we go through, if we're having to endure some difficulty, we say, well, you know, I'm just bearing my cross. And there's some truth in that, but it it falls so woefully short of what Jesus intended when he said it and the way Jesus' audience would have understood it. When Jesus said, take up his cross, you know what image came to his audience's mind? The cross was a symbol of the most horrific type of execution that humanity had ever devised. There was no association of hope with the cross. There was no association of victory with the cross. There was only horrible, excruciating death. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, you need to be ready to lay down your life for my sake. It's not a matter of just denying yourself the the good things of life, not just denying yourself perks and, and luxuries but to lay down your life for his sake. 
That's what it means to take up the cross. It means to give your life. I mean, he actually clarifies it in the next verse when he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He didn't say that by accident. He's following up the call to take up your cross and saying, listen, this is what it means. Be ready to lose your life. And when you lose your life for me, and that doesn't mean necessarily dying when he says lose your life, but he's saying basically surrender your life to him. He says that's where you find purpose. If we're going to walk in the way of faith, we must recognize that our lives are not our own. We will only find satisfaction and meaning as we offer ourselves up to Christ for whatever purpose he has in store for us. He has a right over our lives to do with us what he wants to do. And when we surrender and submit to him, we'll come to find that his purposes and his plan for us are so much more glorious than anything we could have wanted or would have wanted for ourselves. He is able to do more. Romans 12.1 tells us, present your bodies as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Being a living sacrifice simply means surrendering your life to Him on a daily basis. Because sacrifices aren't alive, are they? Sacrifices are dead things. But he says, be a living sacrifice. It's the idea of continual surrender. Once again, Bonhoeffer points out very clearly, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To die to self and to live to Christ. And then he concludes this three-part instruction with the simple words, follow me. He's already told them. Now, the disciples didn't understand it, but he's already told them, I'm going to die, but I'm also going to be resurrected. So to follow Christ is to follow his example, to do the things that he did, to look at his character and emulate him. It's to follow his lead. It's to follow him to the cross but also to follow him to victory through the resurrection. This is the way of discipleship. Following Christ at any cost, knowing that the greatest satisfaction that we can ever experience in this life is found in surrender to the will of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Dying to self and living to Christ. What we have in Jesus is so much more than the assurance of heaven. It is hope in the pit of darkness. It is joy in the midst of pain. It is courage to persevere when everything else is going wrong, knowing that he is with you, working for your good, and seeking to glorify his name through your life. It is comfort and peace and strength when you need it most. I think a lot of times we miss out on the joy of what salvation is meant to be because when we come across the difficulties in life, when we're making sacrifices in order to try and do what's right, we don't recognize 
that this is what Christ has called us to do. So we don't do it willingly. We don't do it with joy in our hearts. We don't do it with expectations. Sometimes we don't even recognize we're doing it for Him. Do you know how often Christ is working through our lives and we don't even see it? But when we engage the difficulties of life, when we sacrifice willingly for His sake and for His purposes, then we're able to find joy in the midst of those dark times. We're able to experience the joy of salvation in the difficulties and in the hardships. We can find hope and satisfaction in the most dire of circumstances because we know that God's love is infinitely greater than anything we're up against in this world. And we know that because Christ gave his life on the cross and because the power of the resurrection on the third day. And it's that power that we look to. That same power has been promised to us. Mike, why don't you put up that last picture? It's a picture of one of our times of worship before class. And, and uh, it's amazing. In every, the, the three international trips that I've done, I have not spoken the language in the places where I've gone. But there's always two words that you'll always recognize when you go and worship with the saints of God. Hallelujah and amen. Because it's, it's, it's universal. They, they, don't, they don't change that into other languages. It just, it just is. So when, when, they say, when they say hallelujah, you know that what they're saying. They're saying praise the Lord. When they say amen, you know that they're saying truth has been spoken. When, and, and you're just able to to join in the worship with them. What I discovered, or rather what I rediscovered while I was away, was a heart of a people surrendered to Christ and His ways, to following after Him in genuine discipleship, and rediscovering these old truths that the more we give to the Lord, the more of our time, our talents, our resources, the more joy that we have in Him. The more we can appreciate Him, the more we can love Him. This is the way. Before I left, before I left for Vietnam, I'd gotten into one of those kind of times of life where it's just kind of a spiritual dryness. And I think, you know, as, as Christians, as we walk with the Lord, we're, we're always going to hit those. We're always going to have those times where no matter what we do, it just seems like God's far away. And we're pursuing Him, but, but He does that, I think, in order that we might pursue Him more diligently. Dry, times of dryness will come, but I don't think they have to be as long as sometimes we let them drag out to be. Because sometimes I think we get discouraged in those times of dryness. Because when we refocus our hearts on Him, when we, when we refocus on Him and when we begin to serve Him and we begin to sacrifice for Him, I believe that He, he brings us to this place of revival in our hearts, recognizing just how glorious He is. He refreshes our soul as we sacrifice for Him. That is the path of discipleship, personal sacrifice. 
It is the way of living a life pleasing to the Lord, to enjoy the benefits of our relationship with Christ. I think there's some that are listening to me this morning that they've never really experienced the true joy of salvation because they've never really been saved. They've never really surrendered themselves to Christ. They've never experienced what it means to sacrifice and to give for Him. But you can fix that today. You can come to Him with a heart of repentance. You can come to Him and ask Him to forgive you. And He's ready to receive everyone who will come to Him by faith. For others, like me before I went on this trip, I'd just kind of gotten off the narrow way. And the Lord gives us a means of getting back on the path through repentance, through recognition of His glory. Maybe today's the time for you to return to Him, to rededicate your life, your resources, your job, your worries, your future, and to place it in His hands. He is well able to take care of it. You can trust Him. He can handle it. Jesus has promised that He will be with all who come to Him in faith. If you're looking for faith apart from discipleship, it doesn't exist. If you're looking, apart, if you're looking for salvation apart from surrender to Christ, you're not going to find it. Christ commands that to come after him is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. This is the way. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize this morning that you offer us hope and joy and purpose and life, and that there's nothing, Lord, that this world has to offer that is more valuable than what you offer us in yourself. And Lord, we need to be reminded from time to time just of how, how much you gave and that you've asked us to follow your example, to follow in your footsteps and to surrender ourselves to you. Lord, it's not easy. But you are faithful. And so, Lord, I just simply ask that you would touch each heart this morning. Everyone who within the sound of my voice, Lord, that you would just lead them to a place of recommitment, to lead them to a place of commitment if they've not been there, Father. And just help us, Lord, to recognize your worthiness and to pursue a life of discipleship that you might be glorified in us. Lord, have your way with our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.